All right, all right. This is, once again, G-Kai. And um, I've been doing, uh, been having a difficult time. Just checking things off my list here, things I need to take care of. Things that I have upcoming. Recalling the life of St. Francis. That's something that I'd like to go over at some point. Um, you know, just to, to the best of my recollection, the, the turning points, significant turning points in the life of St. Francis of Assisi. But that's not what I'll be covering this time around. My intention with this little entry is to go over, is to essentially create a skeleton for a Dharma talk that I actually have tomorrow with my uh, local Zen center here in town about why I have chosen to return to the monastery. So why am I returning? And um, it makes sense to me to admit, first of all, that in a way, I feel like I never really left. In my mind, everything I do, I consider the monastery, you know, even things that don't even make sense. Like if I'm listening, like if I'm watching a movie, I don't know, that um, has a lot of violence or, I don't know, or, or like nudity or sexual situations, you know, I'll, I'll catch myself, I don't know, kind of like looking over my shoulder because I, I, I somehow still feel like I'm experiencing life at the monastery where you would have a, uh, you know, you just have an awkward time of it's harder to get away with watching a movie with a lot of uh, like obscene language, a lot of violence and sexual situations. You know, got my coffee, got my cat on my lap who's trying to jump into my desk. Just had to fish him out of there. I'm experiencing a lot of sadness recently because the time has come for me to give up my cats. And um, tomorrow, night that will be taking place. It's a very kind former co-worker who uh, loves animals very much. And um, it's finally, you know, we're finally making this happen. And um, I don't know, I, I still have a lot of trouble, you know. So I have one, one of my cats right now is sitting on my lap and I'm just stroking his back. And the other one is over there and just biting, you know, grooming her own tail and rolling around in her little groomathon. <sighs> and I'm gonna, I'm just gonna miss them so much. I remember telling my first teacher, Jogan, I was telling him about how. There's a photo of um, what it looks like in the San Juan airport of all these family members of people who are traveling. They're standing in line like this enormous platoon of, um, of broken hearts bearing witness to that final moment when their relative, their loved one crosses the line into the security checkpoint and then disappears back there into the terminals. 
and the uncertainty, the pain of the uncertainty of, you know, when will I see this person again? So the I saw this somewhere on social media, and the person who shared this photo is a Puerto Rican in the diaspora, apparently living in Ohio. And she was saying something along the lines of, you just don't see this in Ohio. You know, there's no, there's no platoon. There's no legion of broken hearts bearing witness to the disappearance of loved ones into the unknown. So to the Puerto Rican eye, Americans are always perceived as uh, colder, you know. But because pain feels bad, emotional pain feels bad, I shared with him that I was rather proud that I discovered a way to avoid this pain find a way to avoid that moment when you actually are standing there and you bear witness to your loved one, you know, slowly kind of disappearing into that, you know, that curling line of, um, to go through TSA. And he told me that that was, uh, that was no good. He didn't like that. He didn't like that. I was avoiding that, that pain. And I told him that, you know, pain is bad. And didn't the Buddha did so, do something similar when he left his his wife and, and baby, Rahula? You know, he had an opportunity to go and say goodbye to them and pick him up, his baby, one last time before leaving and he chose not to because he knew that it would be very difficult for him to leave his life. And he told me, what was it? He said something along the lines of, you know, you're not trying to be Buddha, you're trying to be Jikai. And to honor, mm. honor, I don't know if that was the right word, but to, um, To embrace this, you know, to embrace that that difficult um, emotion, the pain. So, giving up my cats tomorrow evening will be an opportunity to do that. And I don't know, I'm not looking forward to it. Um, you know, Jogan might have something like if 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 he were here, if I was having this conversation with him. He would, um, he would interject something that uh, I am not able to anticipate. That's how, how it works. I think that is one of the dangers that I am exposing myself to by returning to the monastery is that um, those interjections, that feedback that we are not prepared for, they will be offered unsolicited. And as long as you are committed to living in a monastery and training under a teacher, well, I mean, there's nothing you can do about it, really. It's just a part of your life. And um, that's just a part of the training. And sometimes they're very encouraging, and sometimes it's not very encouraging. Sometimes they're encouraged to do things the opposite way that um, that, that we expect to do things. I think I've I've been in situations where I, I see myself demanding myself to be a certain way, to be harder on myself. You know, even for the sake of my spiritual. Um, progress, right? Progress as a spiritual person. And uh, my teacher would encourage me to uh, to look at things a little bit differently, 
in a way that is surprising sometimes. It's very unexpected. And sometimes that's a relief, and sometimes it is not a relief. And um, this is a, a process that I had never connected with the spiritual path until I moved into the monastery back in the summer of 2015. So this is going to be my practice to see whether or not I can talk about why I've chosen to return to the monastery for about 30 minutes. So this is the skeleton, you know, we're going to have the, the skeleton of that, um, of that uh, pontification, of that justification. And uh, the first thing that comes to mind is that, um, in a sense, I don't fully maybe understand why I'm doing this. I feel that I am called to do this. So as I said, I feel like I never really left the monastery and I continue to consider the monastery and um, pretty much everything that I do, almost everything that I do. And yeah, sometimes I have to stop talking just to make room for, for my cat to do his thing move out of position, adjust his posture, whatever it is that he needs to do. So the entire time that I've been living here in Texas, reliably once a month, like the sort of hormonal tide within my mind, um, I would feel overwhelmed by a desire to return to the monastery. And so I call this the monastery fever. Fever. Write it down to make it, make myself remember. And it would come and go. But it, it, it really bothered me because it, it continued to come back. You know, this is something that would go away and I would find myself relaxing into my life in Texas and just thinking, okay, I guess I don't want to go back. And then reliably, boom, it would hit me again. So what happened? What happened was I decided to give myself credit for for my life. And I think it's appropriate to talk a little bit about why I left and my original plan for going into the monastery. So my original plan for going into the monastery back in 2015 was to was to train under a Zen teacher, eventually become a Zen teacher myself, and then return to Puerto Rico and establish a community of uh, meditators, you know, people who were interested in awakening and wanted to, to live in a way that, that channeled the, the intensity and the intimacy of life, a life where um, we're not so asleep to um, to the beauty and the pain in everything and the boredom, I guess. I want to throw that in there as well. That was the project. And what happened was, or rather, in, in my mind, I was very confident of myself. You know, even though I would never have admitted this, but back in the summer of 2015, um, 
I experienced, you know, a lot of shame and anxiety and depression. But when it came to evaluating myself in terms of uh, spiritual matters, I feel like I had a lot of um, of narcissism, of these grandiose kind of like delusions of grandeur. I'm not sure exactly what to call it because this is something that I continue to work with. This is something that's that's still there to some degree. But I'm just I just have a little bit more awareness of it at this point. It's already been um, six years since I started practicing uh, Dharma seriously since the summer of 2015, which is when I started. <clears throat> so uh, you know, until then, I had been reading books on Zen and and Tibetan Buddhism and dream yogas and things that like this. But I wasn't really practicing. And the little bit of practice that I did take part in was unsupervised. There was no feedback. So it was just me going against um, comparing myself to what I was seeing in these books. But anyway, I saw myself as a person who was basically already enlightened. I pretty much felt like I had it all figured out. And by going to the monastery, I was just kind of doing the works, you know, kind of like, um, like if you wanted to clarify your argument, strengthen your argument for, for why you agree or disagree with something, you read a couple books on the subject, you know, you do a little bit of diligence, a little bit of a, a due diligence, and then you go out into the world and you do your thing. So that's basically what I was expecting, and I was blindsided because I had no idea, one, of the incredible amount of, to be honest, the incredible amount of power that I had in terms of my desire for awakening. And this was an unexpected problem in the sense that I became aware of a tremendous amount of suffering in my life that was caused by my own relationship with my emotions, with my body. And so I became aware of a, a lot of harmful thoughts against myself, suicidal thoughts, thoughts of shame, thoughts of disappointment, overwhelmed with regret, especially when it came to things like relationships and romance. I was profoundly regretful over all the lost opportunity in my life. When it came to relationships, I had you know been avoiding relationships for my entire life for a number of different reasons. And it all became clear after having been practicing, you know, not even a very long time, I would say, within my first few days, I became aware of suicidal thoughts. And then that, you know, of course, triggered a sequence of realizations about longing for relationship, but also feeling that relationships were impossible for me. I was unlovable, you know, completely. This is loathsome, unworthy creature. And um, because of the way that you live at the monastery and how little time you spend just sitting on your ass and how much time you actually spend working and how much time you spend away from media and um, and junk food. There's no soda, for example, you know. I started to lose a lot of weight. And with the physical weight, a lot of uh, mental weight came off as well. And this was a very, very um, powerful experience for me because then I had that much more confidence in myself physically. And I this this came as an unexpected problem because now the regret was even stronger 
now the regret around avoiding relationships was much more potent. It was much more painful. So this is something that came and went. But all of this came up around that winter, you know, that winter of 2015. And then eventually when we hit the following summer, I was overwhelmed with, with thoughts of suicide and, and thoughts of running away. I wanted to run away. I was going to do anything I could to get away from that life of the monastery that was so bad for me. And I didn't, I didn't see a way out and eventually decided to leave. And I left a lot sooner than I had anticipated. I was planning to leave in January of 2017. I ended up leaving in October, the October right before, so October of 2016, in the middle of a very long uh, session, which is very irregular thing uh, to do. But I felt that I was really, you know, I, I just didn't have a choice at that point. I needed to do anything that I could do to survive. And that's when I moved to Texas. And what followed was that following spring, I already had a job as a janitor. I had a car. And I started going to therapy. And uh, that was a very eye-opening experience. As you can imagine. So getting back to the subject at hand, what changed, you know, what changed? And the truth is, I don't know what changed. I do not know what changed, but something did change. I can't fully understand it. At the end of the day, it seems obvious to me that I left the monastery wanting to stay. I never wanted to leave. I only left because I needed to. And so now that I'm going back, I'm thinking about all my experiences that I've had out here, opportunities to enter into relationships, for example, work and um, working in the regular sense, you know, for just to pay the bills as well as uh, practicing with the city temple and my teacher here in Texas. And the work of uh, connecting this process of pursuing this deeply rooted desire to be in relationship and that is it, it remains very mysterious to me because in many ways there was a very particular time in my life when i was experiencing all this these difficult emotions so i was still i had just turned 25 and it's very common at that age to be overwhelmed with a baby fever it's an extremely powerful desire um, to have children. And I know that I'm not the only one, uh, of, of like in my community who experienced these things. It was another resident at the monastery who left sometime later, who experienced a similar, um, pain as well as, uh, another friend of mine back in Puerto Rico. So, I do know that this this is something that does happen to you at this at, at that time, and um, that's something that I was going through, and it was a huge part of my pain, a huge part of my suffering and my own disappointment in myself. So, at the end of the day, I finally saw myself kind of um, hmm, kind of settling 
into a life of comfort. And uh, even more recently with this job in uh, transit and working with public transit, just driving the city bus here in Texas, that to me felt like something that was a way for me to provide comfort to myself, you know, until it wasn't. This is something that I saw in a documentary about Jim Carrey's process in uh, portraying Andy Kaufman for the movie Man on the Moon. And he is describing years later his process. And he describes his father. And he talks about how His father said to him at one point that you can fail doing something that you do not love. So you might as well do something you love, you know. I hear someone yelling outside. I don't know what they're saying. So I'm watching this documentary late at night after coming home from work. And it, it just felt clear to me that he was describing my own relationship with work. And I was being told by Jim Carrey through this little anecdote about his father, I was being told to go back to the monastery. I was being told to do what I wanted to do. I was being told to acknowledge that desire to go back. And this is something that continued to repeat itself over these different examples of people's lives. There was another book that I listened to around that time called Enlightened Vagabond. And it's about, it's a collection of stories concerning the life of this 19th century Tibetan saint called Patrul Rinpoche. And his example of practice was so straightforward and relaxed. That I find it, that it, it clashes with my expectation, but at the same time is calling me to, because at the end of the day, that, that relaxation and that peace is the point of practice. Peace, you know, that the end of suffering is the whole project of Buddha Dharma. You know, I wonder if any of my teachers, if they were, if they were to hear that could, provide some, you know, some interjection, some reply, something. But that seems that's the project of Buddha Dharma is the end of suffering. And then there was the movie, a Korean movie by uh, Kim Ki-duk. It's a filmmaker that I love very much. He directed one of my favorite movies called uh, Three Iron. And recently, sometime during the pandemic, I was able to watch another movie of his that I have been wanting to see for years titled Spring, Summer, Fall, Winter, and Spring. And it's about the life of this master and his uh, disciple in this tiny temple on an island in the middle of a lake. It's a very beautiful place. And the example this master of the temple is again that straightforward relaxed quality of um, of engaging with life in a way that is so simple that it, it really just baffles me so these two examples the example of Patrul Rinpoche and the example of the master in this movie
I received as messages to go back. And then we have um, Sharon Salzberg. I'll talk about Sharon Salzberg and her book, Real Love. In the beginning of this book, she describes an experience that she had during a, a meditation retreat where she really saw herself at a crossroads and she felt very clearly that she had two options and her first option was to continue to see herself as this passive recipient of love you know where love is this rain in the desert that only falls at on its own time and she can do nothing but wait and feel just the crushing disappointment of that wait the waiting these are my words they're not hers he doesn't describe it like that but the word passive recipient of love that that's that's hers her other option was to see herself as an active agent of love or a source of love, a living source of love in the world. And, and now I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to use my own words, but in the one, in the one choice, you know, you are, you do feel condemned to continually waiting forever. And in the other, you're opening yourself up to the greater pain of the greater universe. You know, the mystery of being alive, of the cosmos. And yet somehow that feels like the wiser choice. That feels that you're opening yourself and being the love that you wish to see in the world. And so I saw that as a very direct antidote to much of my own frustrations, to much of my own frustration around love and relationships, you know, and that was very eye-opening for me. And it's a very, very beautiful book that I highly recommend to anyone, but especially to those of us who are crippled by the problem of love. And then we have um, Johan Hari who wrote a very beautiful book after doing much research on depression and addiction. And, um, you know, his book is, is full of insights for me, but one major takeaway that is obvious to this point of returning to the monastery is the aspect of community and how important that is for me. And then we have another book called Transcend by Barry Kaufman. I actually don't remember if that's his first name or his middle name. But I know the last name is Kaufman. And the book is called Transcend. And it's all about the hierarchy of needs, Manslow's hierarchy of needs, and uh, recent scholarship on the life of of Manslow and um, and on the hierarchy of needs itself, the pyramid, and so on. And from him, I receive a warning. You know, he appeared on a podcast that I listen to pretty regularly, and one of his warnings 
or or rather like the the, the warning that I received from him is um, that we long for um, mutual intimate relationship and yet when we feel that that is difficult to attain or, or unattainable, we settle for a strong sense of community. And in the worst of cases, the result of that is communities that are very harmful to other people. Like at the time, the example that he provides is ISIS. And, you know, that's a very extreme example, but all through my life, growing up in Puerto Rico, I had seen people who go to church, you know, they're Christian, they're just regular Puerto Rican Christian youths. And um, it just seems clear that they don't really, you know, want God. They just, you know, they want a girlfriend, they want a, a partner. And, you know, they're, they're settling. So it's easy to see that when it's like somebody else in a different community and, or in a religion that, that, that I don't practice. It's much more difficult to see it in myself. And in that regard, I have to admit my, to myself that even though I am returning into a monastery, I still you know, have no intention of avoiding relationship except for, you know, ethical reasons, of course, at the monastery. It's it's a different dynamic. It is not a place where you're open to um, uh, like, like experiment, you know, you can't date a whole bunch of different people in like a year. It's a very uh, different environment. You have to be much more discerning in order not to uh, cause any harm in the community. So kind of like, uh, I think living long-term at the monastery and dating like another long-term resident, the way that, it, that I see it at this point, it's kind of like uh, uh, two teachers at a high school that start dating. You know, that happens all the time, obviously. But it's very delicate. It's very delicate. And the difference is that they live together, regardless. You know, before they were dating and all through their all through their relationship, they continue to live at the school. So that that's that that would be more comparable, which is a very strange and very specific situation. But I think that's a good analogy. My little babies, they're both here with me, giving me some cuddles, giving daddy some, some last cuddles 24 hours before they move into their new home. I wish there was a way for me to communicate to them in a way that they could understand that this was going to happen. Ay, Dios mío, qué rica esa bebé. So, I think the last um, book in this in this sequence of people who are telling me to return to the monastery without, you know, of course, telling me directly is David White. David White wrote a book called The Three Marriages, and that is a book that I really strongly recommend to anyone. And it's a book about, uh, about the marriages that we make, that we have with, um, one, you know, the obvious marriage to another person with whom... Um, we are vulnerable physically. The second marriage is the marriage to a livelihood or work. And then 
lastly, we have the marriage to the process of ourselves and the process of knowing ourselves. And he goes over the lives of some famous people. He goes over the life of Jane Austen, uh, Rilke, the poet, Robert Louis Stevenson, and Pema Chodron. And I think someone else, maybe. No, I think that's it. So there's a point in the book. I was listening to this book. You know, he reads it himself. He has a very... Uh, enchanting voice. But I'm listening to this book close to the end of the book where he's going over the end of the life of Robert Louis Stevenson. And when he arrives at the, at the death of Robert Louis Stevenson, he points out how we have this expectation Of, of married life, that once we get married, we establish ourselves and put down deep roots. And he says, but that's the opposite of what the Stevensons have done. And um, we have every reason to believe that he was madly in love with his wife, you know, to the end of his life. And he was complete, completely devoted to his work. And um, it was after he got married to, uh, oh my God, what was her name? Fanny Stevenson, I think. Fanny Stevenson. That, um, that he produced his most successful work. So he didn't give up his devotion to his work. And lastly, he was very devoted to his family, to his children and to his stepson, even, you know, unto his, his dying day, he was concerned with, um, with his family, with taking care of his family. So David White points to this and he says, you know, like what, this is, this is you know, his, his example, the example of his life is one that really shatters all of our expectations all of our assumptions about life. And I have a distinct memory of walking, you know, from like my bus into the little terminal to use the restroom and then walking back out. And I just, something happened. And I think that that was the point. That was the specific point that like things turned the other way that I finally was able to be honest with myself and say, this is happening. This is, it's, this is imminent. And I will, ha I, I will have to return. So one big problem that I faced in my relationship to work was the lockdown because of the pandemic. And that was an extremely stressful and confusing time for me. And I did not feel that my employer did things in the wisest way. I think that they did their best to protect their image and their investments and their funding. Sure, you know, if that's their purpose for existing, then okay, they did that correctly. But I did not feel cared for or acknowledged in the way that I felt was, in the way that I feel that I needed. So I had a very difficult time coping emotionally. And um, the sense of comfort that I had sort of settled into with work was taken away when my regular schedule was taken away and I was working extremely irregular hours where they would have, they would send us home at six or seven in the evening and have us driving the next day at three, four or five in the morning. So legally they are required to provide eight hours of downtime between sign off time 
and sign-on time for the following day. The problem is that within those eight hours, you have to, you know, fall asleep. But, you know, assuming you don't have anything else to do, no errands to run, you don't have to do groceries. And then finally, the biggest one is whether or not you're tired, you know. So even working a regular schedule where you had to wake up at three in the morning to be driving at four or five in the morning, you kind of had to go to bed in the middle of the day. The You know, the, the previous afternoon, you had to go to bed like, you know, when the sun was still, you know, up in the sky. And that's extremely difficult to do. And uh, I and other uh, operators had a lot of trouble adjusting. But now it was completely up in the air. It was a total train wreck. So sometimes they would have us stay in late until one in the morning and then the following day have you come in a little bit earlier and then the as long as they could have you uh, sign off at around uh, 6 7 8 p.m then you could expect that the following day you would start at around 4 5 in the morning worst case scenario 3 30 in the morning it was absolutely devastating to me and um, i am an animal of routine i really enjoy structure. I have a hard time improvising, especially demanding my body to do things like that. So it became clear that, of course, I am able to do this, but it's not sustainable. You know, if I was experiencing a war or some kind of, a, I don't know, like the aftermath of an earthquake, some devastating earthquake, then, okay, then it made sense to me but not as a life. That's how it was being. That's how I was experiencing this whole process, this extremely destabilizing process. <laughs> so that sense of comfort was gone. Okay. And then things uh, started to lighten up a little bit. Around the summer of 2020, I started to relax a little bit more. Places started to open up here in Texas. And then, you know, I, I, I still felt that it was still too soon to return to the monastery because of this or that reason. I always found some, some reason, you know. And then what happened was that following winter, we had this terrible, terrible winter storm that we were not prepared for. We had no idea what we were dealing with. We had no idea. I wish to speak about the winter storm at another time and go over my experience. But suffice it to say that that week I spoke with Jogan and told him that it was time for me to go back to the monastery, that enough was enough. This was earlier this year. Can't believe it was earlier this year. It feels like much longer. This is in February of 2021. And um, I happened to be driving the bus on Saturday night, February 13th when they started closing down highways and we had to scramble for a route back into the bus yard, encountering accidents everywhere, literally everywhere, everywhere you look, there was an accident, there was a bridge closed down, there was an incident, there were police flocking to deal with some nonsense. And then the following night, February 14 was even worse much, much worse. One of the worst nights of my entire life. So, but I want to go over this at a different time. <laughs> my whole intention with this recording was to provide a skeleton for, you know, a, a, a Dharma talk for tomorrow, but I feel like I have failed incredibly. That was when I made the decision to actually start to leave. So 
Why am I going back? Why am I called to go back? I am not fully aware of why I am being, I feel called to return. But I do know that I want to awaken. I want to become enlightened. I want liberation and I want peace. And I want to live in an environment where I'm surrounded with people who share that desire, who share that intention, that aspiration. And I happen to have a, to feel a strong affinity for the Zen lineage. And I love dealing with people. I love talking with people. I love telling stories and uh, building relationships with people and um, creating friendships is something that I've always been um, very good at. It's always been very easy for me to do these things. So the monastery is a place with that, that combines these interests and these um, these aspirations of mine and focuses them in a way that I consider to be the most noble. At the end of the day, that is to the best of my, my, my awareness of my internal life. That is why it, I think it's worth returning. So I think about poetry. You can think about doing stand-up comedy, telling stories. And uh, my interest in these things as well, my interest in music and playing music and making music. My interest in conversation and uh, emotional, emotionally intimate conversation of telling the truth, being real, being raw. And I just see the monastery as a great place to work with that energy, with that intention. <laughs> so I have been rambling for nearly an hour and I have not provided myself with a good framework, a good outline for tomorrow. So I think I'll just um, do that on paper instead of doing it like this, where I'm constrained by time 